Welcome to Masters of Color, brought to you by LowPost.com and RavenGrade.com. I'm Cullen Kelly, and my guest today is Steve Yedlin, ASC. Now, in addition to being one of my all-time favorite cinematographers, Steve is also incredibly knowledgeable about image science and film emulation, and he's become a true thought leader in these areas. We've got a great conversation in store for you on these and other topics. Today's episode is sponsored by Pixelview.io, an affordable streaming solution for editors and colorists. It's an all-in-one solution that just works. Simply plug in the encoder and start streaming. Now with built-in video chat, it enables easy collaboration with remote clients, allowing you to discuss and make changes in real time while everyone is viewing the same high-quality image. You can use promo code MASTER to get a 15% discount on a hardware encoder at pixelview.io. And now, without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Steve Yedlin, ASC. Hey, Steve. Hey, how you doing? All is good. Excellent. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I liked your, your, your classy, slightly grained Yedlin Y there, and even better to, to see you, your, your face there, and you've got your, your little tableau going on with your uh, Panavision mag back there. Yeah, I do. Looking uh, good, man. The Panaflex mag that, uh, that was on Looper. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> is that, that's, that's just a 400-foot mag, right? Nope, it's 1,000. It's 1,000. Yeah. I, I couldn't quite tell with the scale here, but it, it, it yeah, looks... it's, far, it's far away. Yeah. It's a wide lens. Yeah. Oh, how cool. What are you, what are you drinking there? Are you a, a, do you have particular coffee? Espresso. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, dude, am I looking at, am I looking at Yedlin grain on your image right now? Or is that just zoom? Okay. No, that's just, that's just a bad zoom connection. Yeah. Okay. That, that, <laughs> I, I, I would have had to, I don't, I don't know what I would have done if, if uh, <laughs> to discover you'd gone to that depth of no, that's, that's just that's just noise from a from a, a laptop camera and a and a, and a, a low data rate connection. Nice. Well, how's it going, man? You just uh, you just got back from being uh, off on a shoot, right? Yeah. The um, the next uh, Benoit Blanc mystery. Very cool. Yeah. That one. That, that that was so much fun. I mean, like like many of us, we're going to talk about all this stuff hopefully today, but like so many in the, the post and uh, color community, I'm such a fan of all of the good information and education you put out there. And obviously a lot of it was uh, surrounding or has been surrounding Knives Out, but uh, I just recently rewatched it and had kind of honestly forgotten amid all of the conversation about, oh, look at all the cool emulation that Steve did and like, <laughs> the images that he captured. It's just like as a whole, just a really yeah. fun movie that when you're watching, it's pretty tough to break apart into those pieces. It just is great, right? Oh, great, yeah. Well, obviously, we don't, you know, that's the goal. We don't do any of that stuff so that people are sitting there staring at it. We're doing it just to, you know, to make the, you know, to make the movie the best, uh, the best way we know how to tell the visual, the story visually, you know? So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's a, a great way to, you know, kind of start our dialogue today. So I mm -hmm. think. Most of us who are uh, watching and listening to this conversation today uh, probably know you and your resume precedes you, but uh, just by way of a summary, you are a cinematographer. You're the only cinematographer who I'm going to be speaking with uh, in this series, and uh, you're a very accomplished cinematographer. You're a member of the American Society of Cinematographers. You've shot some amazing films in, uh, over the, la the last you know, 10, 20 years, including Knives Out, which we were just talking about, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, Looper, which we see the, the proudly displayed thousand foot mag for back there, uh, and, lots of, and Carrie, lots of other uh, really great films. So we're excited to have a filmmaker of uh, that caliber on us, uh, or with us rather, just on those merits. But of course, what we're really talking about today and the reason why uh, we wanted so badly to have you onto this podcast that's more centered on post-production and uh, color grading and image mastering is because of all of the really, really excellent work you've done in that space and uh, your really exceptional knowledge. So to put things in a very articulate manner, my first question to you is this, like, what the hell? Like, the first <laughs> time I saw your, your content uh, many years ago, th those were the words that came out of my mouth. I was like, what? I, I, I know who Steve Yedlin is already because he's a, a well-known cinematographer, 
but how does he know all this? And, and like, how is it that like, I'm, I now feel at once excited to learn more, but also just a little bit insufficient at my job uh, as supposedly a post-production expert. How did you come into uh, your, your, your passion and your knowledge of all this stuff? Uh, I mean, it was really just felt like necessity, you know, I mean, uh, the very beginning, it kind of felt like, um, you know, I mean, I, I was not into any, like color science or anything. I really was just a DP and um, it just started feeling like, you know, I didn't really know anything about digital, you know, digital acquisition and it just started feeling like this was going to be forced on us, whether it was ready or not, uh, you know, and I, I wasn't, you know, at that time, of course, I was all, all film all the time, but if there wasn't a film versus digital debate really, you know, <laughs> to, I mean, I think debate's a misnomer, but that whole, you know, friction and, and all of that stuff, um, that, that didn't even exist because film was the only thing you would have been, you know, using for, for anything. And, but it just felt like the technologies were changing so fast and it, this thing was going to be upon us either way. Like it didn't matter whether it was, it was ready, you know, even if it was going to be as good or better later, um, you know, we were going to, it was going to be upon us now. Um, and mm -hmm. so it was just kind of a, you know, let me start learning about as much as I can to make this more like the way that we're used to shooting, the way we like shooting, you know, not, you know, and, and not in our, in an archaic way. I mean, if there's something that's better rather than the same, that's fine. But, that, you know, we didn't want, um, you know, didn't want things getting worse in terms of <clears throat> both imaging, you know, the, the art, the artistic, uh, rendition of colors, you know, the art, uh, artful rendition of colors and so forth, and also on set, um, you know, just the way things work, like the idea that, you know, you can't even shoot something without like a whole rack-mounted spaceship full of equipment, you know, whereas with film, you can shoot something, if you have a camera, you can shoot something, you know, right. and, and uh, so, so both the operational side and the imaging side, uh, I, I just started learning as much as I could, and that kind of uh, just because of my obsessive nature, that kind of just tumbled and and just kept going. Like every time you thought, "Oh, I'm just trying to learn this one more thing," and then after several years, you you realize there is no finish line. I'm just you know, I'm just always learning. You know. Yeah, I, that that uh, is very familiar for sure. You you, you keep thinking <laughs> you hit the bottom of the rabbit hole, and and it just ain't there, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that that's so interesting. And so when approximately like timing wise was this was this like early alexa days like earlier than that no uh, right before that um 2004 was, and i'm not saying that i knew all the stuff i know now because obviously it's right. continuing it's you know and also there's such a you know it is a kind of a you know that exponential curve where it's really slow to learn anything at all at first and then once you really get into it you're learning bigger stuff faster uh, but yeah 2004 i think was when i first shot a, a feature on a on an electronic camera of any description and uh um you know the first thing was just nailing down the camera because i had been told all of this stuff about you know you know at that point we didn't, we didn't really have digital cinema cameras the, the the hd cameras were video hd cameras it was like an f900 and there was all this sort of superstitious talk about it like you know you know, you can't not white balance every shot. And I, that, that sort of didn't make any sense to me because I understand, on the one hand, I understand that, um, you know, there's manufacturing tolerances and you know what I mean? And also, right. you know, variances, you know, like uh, temperature could affect something. But if it's at the magnitude that they're talking about, the camera wouldn't work. Like, it just seems so suspicious, like, you know. It would be and, a bad instrument and, by any measure. Yeah, yeah, it's like the thing just literally wouldn't even work if that was the case. Like, <laughs> I don't even under, so, you know, so, so you know, sure enough, we did some digging, and there's so many layers of under menus. There's not just the user menus, there's like the hidden expanded user menus, and then under that, there's the maintenance menus, and then, you know what I mean, under that, there's yeah. the calibration menus. And, you know, basically if the calibration, men, you know, what we discovered is if the calibration menus had been set up proper, like somebody does have to calibrate it and that's the lowest level one, then the other ones, if you zero them all out, yes, the camera is repeatable. The two different camera bodies look like each other. You don't have to keep white balancing everything, you know, because part of the reason, if you had two bodies, part of the reason that 
they, they would look different if they had this, the same white balance rather than each their own white balance was that the under menus were different. You know, so if you make the under menus the same, you know, so that was kind of the first thing was literally that's not even learning color science or anything. That's just sorting out a camera that has way too many menu options, which obviously our cinema cameras don't have now. You know, there's only, you know, for the most part, they don't even have anything that actually changes image process, you know, processing, I mean, they, yeah. the processing. Yeah. And they don't even have a lot of stuff that changes the monitoring processing and, you know, let alone the, what you're actually laying down processing. So we don't have to worry about that as much. And we're back to, you know, to an extent we're back to obviously, you know, the main things that you change in the camera that are actually changing the imaging as opposed to the monitoring are the same things we did with film. It's just the shutter angle, the frame rate, you know, right. uh, and that stuff. But, uh, but at the time that was, so that was kind of the very, very, very first thing was kind of just, you know, saying, Hey, can we actually make the, you know, isn't this a machine? If, if it's, it should be predictable enough. I mean, sure. Things have margins of error and again, manufacturing tolerances, but, but my God, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, so does film, you know, I mean, there's different yeah, emotion batches and different, and different chemistry at the lab every day and, and, and all of that stuff. So it, it just seemed wrong to me that, that, um, the thing was this spectacularly and wildly variable and, and, you know, sure enough, it wasn't that it was variable. It's just that there were, you know, people were only looking at one part of the menu and then saying, well, you've got to do something different on the two, two camera bodies because they're just not the same, but they weren't looking deeper into the, the thing. So it was a very user level, uh, you know, a very, very user level, uh, investigation. You know? Well, I, I mean, I think that's, uh, as good a uh, example or uh, analogy as any I can think of for so much of what I, it seems like you're most passionate about communicating, which is like, let's actually build the right system and like control the variables in the correct way from that more like uh, ground level, as opposed to like being like, I just think that's such a fascinating discovery that like, oh, it's, it's not actually that I'm resting on an uneven floor. It's that the floor is, you know, itself built on a weird angle. And if I, dig up the, you know, like to, uh, abuse this analogy. If I dig up the, uh, underneath there and level things out, right. I no longer have a problem with an uneven floor and I can, you know, set things on top of it. That'll be level right off the bat. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. That, 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 that is a good analogy. Yeah. So, I mean, that's so interesting. So I'm just curious because of how much we've all heard you talk about, uh, the level of attention to detail that goes into your image pipeline today on something like knives out. What kind of pipeline did you use on, uh, what was that film, by the way, the one on the F900? Oh, uh, it's called uh, Conversations with Other Women. Okay, gotcha. It's, a, a, uh, it's, uh, um, it's kind of, it, you know, it's a really small indie drama, and it's, uh, you know, uh, it's with uh, Helena Bonham Carter and Aaron Eckhart, and it's, you know, it's mostly just the two of them. And um, they kind of had this, um, uh, I don't know if gimmicks the word, but it, it had this thing where the whole movie is split screen, you know, in various ways. Sometimes it's while they're talking to each other and you're seeing both of them. Sometimes you're seeing a flashback, sometimes two different shots are merging into one, but the whole thing is, is split screen. And, and, you know, in reality for a huge chunk of it, we were shooting with two different F 900s sometimes at the same time and in the same space. And, you know, that was one of the things is can we get them to where they all have the same settings in them instead of assuming that the cameras are different. So, that, you know, there's something, you know, fundamentally different about these two camera bodies. So they each have to have different white balances to look the same. Right. You know, that just didn't seem right, you know, and, and, you know, sure enough, we did it where they had the exact same settings, not different settings that were supposed to make them the same. You know? Yes. Oh, I love that. And so like, like what did the, in 2004, with an F900 and a DP who is uh, circumspect enough to say, wait, are there more menus under here where I can actually <laughs> alter the, the baseline? What does that, I don't even know if we could call it a DI, what does that like post pipeline look like in terms of the way that image well, is rendered out? Well, we, I mean, yeah, I mean, I didn't know all the, you know, I didn't know any of this, you know, I mean, I, I just had to use what was handed to me. So that was a DI at that time. Uh, this is second, I think it was the second time I'd ever done a DI and, you know, it, I mean, it wasn't great because we were basically shooting, um, it was basically gamma encoded. We were using like Sony had this thing called the cinema curve or something like that, yeah. where the, 
you know, the transfer function from the sensor linear into the, you know, to, to what you're writing onto the, uh, at that time was HD cam tape, you know, that transfer function was a little sort you know, like flatter and a little more filmy than their standard one, but it was still gamma encoded ish. It wasn't log right. or anything like that. Um, so we were kind of just at the mercy of the post house and, and that, that was kind of the second big thing that, uh, I mean, I started learning more and more after that. And that was kind of the second big thing is, uh, my very longtime friend and colleague, Jaron Presant, who I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's also, uh, ASCDP, uh, he's, uh, he's done a second unit with me and Ryan on almost every movie. Um, I think Knives Out was the only one he didn't do, but he also does huge movies of his own. He shot Rampage and, and stuff. And um, uh, he and I have kind of done a lot of this stuff together. So he and I kind of did this. Uh, we had this thing that we, <laughs> we called Yedlog that some people still remember uh, around town, which is we actually, because at that time, the F900, uh, you could actually load that curve in. Like, obviously, you can't do that now with cameras. The actual, the actual upfront, sensor linear to whatever it's doing the, like the encoding curve yeah like right now it's like log c for alexa it's right. you, know, you know whatever so we uh at that time and obviously you couldn't shoot uh you know you couldn't shoot uncompressed you know so so there uh you know what that curve was you know was a you know mattered a little bit more obviously because right know, and Anyway, we, we, so we made this thing that we called Yedlog, which was basically shooting log before even the Panavision Genesis. It, you know, it was like there was no log cameras. And so we started doing this. And the idea of it or the actual benefit of it at that time is something that wouldn't matter now because we weren't really getting, I mean, if you're familiar with the stuff on my site and I talk about log being more um, efficient, you know, you still need a certain amount for it to actually be more efficient. You certainly need a certain amount, like the amount that what you're writing it into has to have a higher bit depth by a certain amount than what you're reading from. And right. I don't think we really had, I don't think it was that different at that time. Cause I think it was like 10 bit to eight bit instead of 14 bit to 10 bit or whatever. So it was, it was sort of the quality increase or whatever was nominal, if anything, but the real advantage of it was it wasn't quality it was fitting into the pipeline because at that time you know you couldn't make LUTs for looks it wasn't like ooh, this is the LUT that I like like literally the LUT was a technical thing that showed you this is what is going to happen when this goes to the film recorder film yes. recorder is a physical thing you can't change the system you know Kodak's original you know recommendation for how Cineon was used was a closed loop system where if you were to scan it, film it out, scan it, you would get the same thing, but nobody ever, ever, ever did that. So right. going out to a film recorder was just its own thing. You know, so the LUTs, the LUTs weren't like, ooh, I like this look. And the LUT was also not, this is what you would have got if you would have printed it. You know, the LUT was literally just, this is what is going to happen. Right, you know? absolutely. And, 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 you couldn't, and you couldn't change that. So there was only one LUT uh, for a facility and, you know, whatever, for the facility you're at the film recorder, you're using the, 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 the intermediate stock you're recording onto and the print stock that you're going to, there's only one LUT for that. And, and, you know, if you were to shoot any, any sort of a gamma encoded type thing, whether it was a, a more traditional video one or whether it was that Sony cinema, whatever they call, I can't remember what it was called back then. It was a long time ago now. Um, you know, somebody's got to somehow do a, a sort of arbitrary. Um, and, and the thing is, I don't think they even had that stuff well mapped at the time. You know, like the 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 house wouldn't necessarily even have a well. This is a gamma encoded to film log transfer transform. It would literally just be you take those files into the color grade, and of course they look wrong because you've got a gamma encoded image going through a through a LUT that literally Expect doesn't do anything else. Yeah, that's meant for scanned film, you know, and nothing looks right. So you're hammering it from scratch. So the so the biggest advantage of Yedlog was that this Yedlog thing we we're doing was that the densities came in right. Right. You know, so like you're, they, you're, they, you're, they, you were just encoding film negative densities into a metric that would uh, like tee up properly for a printout. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, were all the colors and everything exactly right? No, of course not. You know, it was a 1D thing. It wasn't a 3D LUT or anything, yeah. but it, it at least got that. I mean, if you didn't use it, you don't even have the 1D part, right? Yeah, so for sure. know, we didn't know any, we didn't really know how to do any of the 3D stuff back then. And, um, you know, so anyway, that was just something we did for, uh, you know, for a little while, um, where we, uh, yeah, we were re using the Sony stuff. You know, honestly, we probably did it more for commercials than features because, you know, there were only a couple of features. Can't remember, like maybe two that I did between the time when everything was filmed and when we started to have Alexa and other things where this stuff is actually already figured out. You don't have to, you don't have to have like a, a hack, you know? Right. Uh, what, you know? Well, I mean, it's also fascinating to me that, you know, you mentioned like this was our, our solution to just getting a, a density like 1D uh, piece of it sort of like aligned properly. And that's to say nothing of like primaries or spectral response or any of that stuff. But it's also so interesting that like that aspect of it continued to plague early like DI processes for such a long time. Oh, yeah. And we're oh, like, yeah. we're kind of still trying to figure out like, well, you can't run, for example, like something that uh, I feel like many of us have learned from you that like you can't just run airy wide gamut primaries through a film emulation LUT that's expecting neg densities and neg primaries and get a faithful reproduction of what that negative to positive system would have gotten you, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. That's so interesting and it, it's just fascinating because this is all honestly just a little bit before my time, but I've now had a couple of conversations about this era that you and I are talking about, this sort of like early, you know, like digital cinema and pre-digital cinema moment. And like just another fascinating uh, like conversation I had recently about like the early red cameras, even though those were like the first movement toward more of like a cinema style digital camera, hearing about how many like first gen movies shot on red were actually graded in like a sort of quasi gamma curve like you're talking about because there was no ratified encoding for like a, a log cineon type of thing to tee it up for a traditional di so that was the same thing it's like all right how can we get acceptable visual results how can we achieve our creative goals using really suboptimal uh means and methods which is like an interesting question but i think what's far more interesting and something that you've really spearheaded is like how can we optimize our means and methods to achieve this so that they're in alignment with our creative goals? No, absolutely. And, and that, you know, that superstition that we're still battling with, but of course it was even, you know, way off, you know, at that time it was so embedded that it wasn't even, you know, you couldn't even, there was no words to talk about it because it was so embedded of the, the superstition that the, that the camera is making the look and not the, you know, and not the processing. And, you know, we, you know, we saw stuff like that with, um, because, because basically people were not handling this stuff correctly at all. There wasn't a pipeline for, you know, not just log encoding, but for DPs to understand how they were exposing, you know what I mean? Because you, yes. you know, you had things where even if it was, even by the time there was log encoding, there was still a very, very video-y in-camera transform that was going to the monitor and then people had been told now you have to light with the monitor and not your meter and you know of course that you know not just is the curve itself weird but even if the curve is good that makes people tend towards overexposure when they have a monitor um instead of a meter and and you know you ended up with things like the like the f35 and the sony genesis i mean the uh, panavision genesis which were basically the same camera you know, which really were the first, those were the first like cinema, digital cinema cameras that were widely used at all. They weren't the first ones, period, but they were the, I think they were the, you know, or, or especially the Genesis. Yeah. And, you know, those cameras really quickly got outdated to where as soon as uh, a new camera came out, they were like, oh, let's get the new camera because those have a video. And the thing is, you know, I'm not saying I'd necessarily want to shoot with those things now, but the thing is, those were actually pretty damn good cameras. But, but everybody, because everybody ties the idea of a look to a camera, you know, there were a whole bunch of these movies made with them that do look legitimately, legitimate complaint that the movies look really video-y. Yes. You know, and they're like, let's not use that camera because that looks really video-y. It's like, but that's not from the sensor or the way it records the data. It's from what you did with the, with the image, you know, you used a, a video-y 
transformation to prepare it for for viewing and <laughs> so of course it looks video you know yeah you know we but another camera from that same era was the f23 we actually used the f23 for one shot in last jedi <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah that's yeah. interesting yeah i mean so it like I, one of the things that i i find uh particularly valuable about your perspective and your contributions that you've made to the conversation about all of these subjects we're discussing is it, it seems to me that part of the, you know, like th that critical eye that you're casting on these like really baked in assumptions that, as you said, sometimes are so baked in that we don't even have like language to describe them or access to them uh, in conversation. It seems like part of that actually is coming from the fact that you're not just, you know, like, like, in the post-production entrenched in like the post-production world so much and you're coming at it from much more of that agnostic perspective of like i just want to make my images look good do you feel like that's informed like some of these critical questions that you've continued to ask over the years i don't think it's because of being on production side as opposed to post-production side because in my experience the the if you have somebody that's going to be in curious and and you know just go based on superstitions and prejudice and uh, stereotypes or, what, or whatever um that i mean in my experience that's actually worse on the production side than on the post-production side <laughs> <laughs> so, uh you know because, i mean because there's a lot of i mean uh, you know a lot of the stuff that i put out there um you know i've actually you know, a lot of times I feel like for, for production people, it, it, you know, some people just aren't going to listen to it, but of the people that do listen to it or, or that it means something to them, that production people, it's more like, oh, this is an eye opener. I didn't know it before. Whereas post-production people, it's more like, I've been trying to explain this to production people for years, but I didn't have the words for it. So thank you for like, you know, making it clearer. Yes. You, you know, so, and, and that did feel like it, you know, it was years enough to learn some of the, you know, forgetting the like actual math and applied part of it, just the conceptual part of it. It took years to learn it. And then it actually took more years. It wasn't like, as soon as you learn it, it took a whole bunch more years to have this sort of language for it to, you know, to where we could, you know, I could do the display prep demo. Yeah. Because I think, I think like Jaron and I, like, I think the concepts, you know, the sort of the conceptual and philosophical, again, not mathematical, not the on the ground detail part, but just the, the, the bigger stuff. I think Jaron and I had actually been thinking like that and generally talking like that for, you know, at least five years, if not more, if not a whole bunch more at that point. But it kind of took it, it we didn't until that point get to actually have the clear language for it. It was more like, you know what I mean? That when you have that thing that's in your head and you can't get out through your mouth and, and you know, so it was kind of already our philosophy, but we didn't really have the, any sort of evocative or succinct language for it. Um, you know, we, we probably kept making runs at having it, but it, you know, it only kind of gelled uh, around that time when we originally did the, the demo in 2015. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. And, um, it, what's interesting at this point is we're now in 2021 and you know we've we've had enough time pass from 2015 with that display prep demo and i think you as you've said you've had you have had uh you know like you, you've been able to make converts of some people who go like wow that makes sense and i can give it a try and see the, those ideas and concepts prove out whether i'm a production or a post-production person and uh something i, I imagine uh you're super proud of is that you can take some credit for elevating the conversation and changing it a little bit around uh, these subjects. Wow. So, yeah. I, yeah. So. I don't know. Sometimes it feels like yelling into the void a little bit, but yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah but well, like you, you said, there, there, there's, there, it, I don't yet know what the cure is for uh, be, like making assumptions and lacking curiosity and wanting right. to, <laughs> to, to grab your stuff off the shelf and eat it out of the box. Like, yeah. There, there's always going to be those folks and, and there's products for them. And, and that's probably a loop that we won't interrupt. Yeah. Man. It's, it's fair enough. I mean, the thing is too, it's fair enough. If somebody wants to, to not think about it, not design it, use an off the shelf method, that's, I mean, that's totally fine because there's different, you know what I mean? Different people, you know, like if you're a, 
I mean, if you're an author, you don't have to write the code for a, for, for a, for a, a word processor to write it. You know what I mean? You can just get a yeah. word processor and then write your novel. Um, yeah. You know, so, so if people want to use stuff that's, that's off the shelf, that's fine. Um, I guess. But for me, the thing that's frustrating is when you, you have people, and this is not by any means a hundred percent, but it is out there where you have the same people that want to do it off the shelf and are and curious about how it works are the same people that are really loudly yelling uh, that they're experts on this thing that they don't want to know anything about and let someone else do it so they can just get it off the shelf and that there are geniuses for picking which one of the two off the shelf options someone else created. And it's like, I mean, if you want to say, look, I don't do that part of it, you know, my, you know, the, you actually can be a genius at a different part of it, right? Like, yes. If you're an image author, it's like we're doing lighting, we're doing camera. We don't do, we don't figure out the image rendering stuff. Someone else, the color rendering and all that. Someone else figured that out, and we have one that we like. You yes. know, but, but to be proclaiming that you're the expert that people should listen to on it, and you're the best because you selected one that someone else did all the work for, and in some cases that thousands of or tens of thousands of people worked on for over a hundred years. And, and to proclaim your, for, that you're a genius for just using it, yeah. you know, it's a little bit mind-boggling to, to me, you know? So. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, that's, that's certainly a, a type that spans uh, your world and mine and the overlap where it's like, yeah, it, it, you, you characterized it very well. It's like, the, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say to that person. Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, so here's my next question for you. So we're now, you know, whatever, six years into hopefully uh, Steve dropping uh, a couple of, uh, you know, drops into the pond and making some ripples and and moving things into a good direction. Uh, Where do you feel like, like, where are we now compared to like when you did that first demo, like culturally in, in terms of our industries for production and post, are we going in a good direction? What are we getting right? What are we still woefully missing? Where are we at? I honestly don't know. I mean, I don't really, I mean, I mean, seriously, I don't have any way to really gauge what other people are doing. You you know what I mean? And it's, it's also, it's anecdotal because like if I talk to three other DPs that I happen to know, that's only three there and they're the ones that I happen to know, you know what I mean? So it's, I'm not really sure how to, you know, you know, how how to be, you know, because I hear absurd stories about people doing, you know, acrobatic stuff to say that they did it a certain way that where you're like, Oh God, there's nothing to change. <laughs> and then, but then, you know, you also see the people just quietly doing great stuff too, you know? And I, you know, I don't, I really don't understand, you know, I really have no way to survey like sort of what's going on out there. You know what I mean? So, All right. So you're, you're not going to be my real time historian. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Damn. I don't know anything about that part. <laughs> Well, uh, maybe a, a better question then would be uh, in terms of the way you know, I, that was such a fascinating uh, window into the beginnings of uh, your explorations with color science and pipeline to talk about that uh, initial experience uh, back in '04. And obviously, we all know quite a bit about where you've evolved since then. And we've seen your cool Twitter posts with your cube manipulations and distortions and seeing your display prep demos and You've got a lot of fans who are listening in right now, I'm sure. Yeah. What What are you excited about right now? Or what are you bedeviled by right now in terms of continuing to evolve those systems and, and models that you're so fond of? Yeah, well, I think the the thing that I'm uh, actually both, both uh, most excited and most bedeviled by right now is actually uh, the same thing. And it's more <laughs> on the lighting side right now than the camera side. Um, because we're a little bit with lighting, we're a little bit into where we were with cameras like 10 years ago, because what happened is all of a sudden everything went to led, right. And uh-huh. you've got these tunable lights where, you know, it used to be all the only thing you could do with a light was turn it on. Right. You know, and now, now there's all these, you know, you're, you're basically blending anywhere between three and seven different diodes different colors of diode in led lights and it's kind of the same thing where you have the 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 zealotry of love and the zealotry of hate both of which actually are they're they're actually the same as each other because they both are resting on the same false presuppositions it's just taking a different uh you know you know giving a different um 
positive or negative valuation to those presuppositions. And, 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 it's, and part of what's really similar to the whole digital thing was you had one group of people that got so excited that you could do anything that they forgot that, you know, they got so excited about it that they, that they forgot to get it set up right. Like they didn't have the LUTs, they didn't have the log encoding, they didn't have the color science, they were just so excited that you could like, you know, what you see is what you get. If you look at a monitor, then you know how it's going to come out. It's like, no, that's not, that's, that's not correct. You not know, it. That's not how yeah. it you know, and, and so, so it's good, like getting the too excited too early and it was never set up right. And then you go, why does it look like this? I thought I saw it, you know, on the monitor and now it looks like it's all video instead of cinematic. And it's like, because you weren't thinking about that when you were looking at the monitor, you're in the chaos of a set and the color science wasn't set up. And then you have the flip side, who are the people at that time who were like, nothing but film, only film can, can, can do it, you know, and, and, but that was because film actually had been set up some people had spent scientists and right. engineers had spent all the time to set up the system so that it actually worked right and we're kind of this crazy thing with the with lights right now where people think you know like the the, the two sides the i love leds and i hate leds a lot of times are resting on the same false presuppositions you just had people got so excited that you could change the color of a light that they forgot to figure out how to like how, how, what makes you think it's the color that you want it to be like you know and, right and and then the, the and then of course the flip side is you've got to use incandescent lights because only incandescent lights can look right it's like well no you can use leds but you have to make them the color you want them to be you know because there, there's all this stuff going on right now where people know there's this complex thing, the interaction of the spectral distribution of the light with the spectral reflectance of the scene with the spectral sensitivity of the camera. They know it's complicated stuff with lots of confusing graphs that they don't understand. <laughs> so when, when it, and whenever anything comes out a way they didn't want, they go, it's that complicated thing that I didn't understand. See, we shouldn't use something that has all that complicated stuff going on. And it's like, no, actually, that's not why. It was just the wrong color. Like you right. don't have to know anything about uh, metameric failure, spectral sensitivity to know if you look at that light and it's blue magenta and it's metering blue magenta and it comes out blue magenta, there's no weird spectral distribution thing going on. It was just the wrong color. You didn't uh -huh. want it to be blue magenta. You should have made it the color you wanted it to be, you, you know? And, and so it's, it's sort of this, um, so on the one hand, th that's a frustrating thing because now there's starting to be again a whole, mythology based on misinformation about some of this stuff but on the other hand it's exciting because you know like we were building our LUTs and our way to get this thing that was out of control you know it's great that it can do more stuff but it needs to be in control you know what i mean we're it's great that you can turn the dials and knobs but it can't be that you have to build the world from scratch with dials and knobs for every shot of the movie right like it has to just work and then you can use the dials and knobs to adjust things. It can't be like it doesn't work and you have all these dials and knobs, you know. Absolutely. And, and that's, we're, you know, uh, again, me and Jaron and some other colleagues, were, were, you know, we're kind of doing our way of, of, of reining that in and using the what this stuff can do where um, you can actually use it, but that also the baseline works. Interesting. You know? So are, are, are you developing uh, essentially like, some best practices isn't the right word, but, but some sort of like parameters that you're like, here are the means and methods that we, like here are the axes or the presets that we will say tune this light along in order to get these results. Yeah, and those yeah. those yeah. anchors. Well, 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 yeah, it's a combo of things. I mean, one is, you know, the, the biggest one is just that we're pushing, I mean, we're doing it, but we're also um, advocating for other people to do it. Um, to just to always measure colors in XY chromaticity coordinates, or I mean, you can use U prime V prime, which is a, it's a meters versus feet thing. They're the same. Right. It's all the same map. Same world. Uh, yeah, uh, because it's the only literal hard science. This is the actual color of the thing. It's not relative, and it's not you know. As soon as you use an RGB system, not only is that confusing because there's so many of them. Which one are you using? But also, it's screwed up because then the color is tied to the density and and as things get brighter, they lose their color and you know what I mean? But that's not how yes. a light works. If a light's a certain color and you make it brighter while it's that color, it's just still that color and it got brighter. Right. You know, so, so you know, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a, 
very hard science way to do it. So one is just advocating for people to do it that way. Um, but then also making tools to help with it. Like we have this little calculator, uh, that helps, you know, like if, if a light doesn't have, if, you know, like they're, oh, you know, the high end cinema stuff has X, Y in the light, like, uh, the sky, sky panel. Every sky panels and the, and the cream source vortexes and stuff, they, you know, and, and they're pretty well calibrated. I mean, it's, it's worth metering it and making sure that if you tell it a certain X, Y, that's actually what it's Is doing. It that? But yeah. they're, pretty, they're pretty darn well calibrated if they, if they haven't been damaged or, or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, so with those, you can use it in that mode, but with others, if they don't have that mode, I have this calculator we've been using that will actually calculate, uh, how to get the exact X, Y you want, but not, I know there's some people that have been trying to do that where like if the thing has five diodes, like if it has RGB and then two whites, it'll just do it with the RGB, which not only is way, way dimmer, but it's also a worse spectral distribution. So I have this calculator that gives you the absolute brightest combo of the five that's exactly the color you want it to be. Um, oh, and it does a bunch of other, it does a bunch of other stuff too. And we're, and we're actually working on, uh, I, I don't know if we're going to get this accomplished, but we're actually also working on a light control software where you don't have to calculate it and then put it into your light control stuff, but where it would just control all the lights and, and you can just do it that way and you don't have to think about it. So. Interesting. So is that based on essentially like uh, profiling fixed intervals within uh, whatever light you're wanting to exert that exact XY control over? Well, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's based on measure. I mean, if, if we're doing it with a, with a sort of fixture that doesn't have XY, you do need, you know, you need the basic ability to control it, right? There's some lights we can't do it with. If it, but if it's a light that where you were, like, let's say it has, you know, they're, they're all different, but they usually have four, most of them have four or five diodes, right? Right. You need to be able to control each one separately and linearly. Uh, you know, sure. Or if it's not, or if it's nonlinear, you at least have to know what the nonlinearity is. Right. You know so you can I mean? linearize it uh, in your so calculations. You it, it, exactly. So if the light doesn't allow you to do that, then we can't do it. But any, but most of them do because even the just the, you know, even just the cheap kind of generic LED uh, ribbon that you get, and there, there, there's cheap DMX decoders, the controllers for them. There's actually these ones that are made in China that all these different brands just rebrand the same one. And it's got linear pulse, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, pulse width modulation control and it's perfectly linear, you know, and it's just controlling each diode separately. And it doesn't have any fancy stuff like a sky fan. It doesn't have X, Y, it doesn't have anything. It literally pretty much just has the separate control. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, so that we can is do so it cool. The, yeah, so it's exciting. But, you know, the, just a, a, an analogy that I always love that, you know, we've been talking about it for color pipeline, <clears throat> color management, and now for lighting. But uh, an analogy that was originally about just the, the very idea of a DI that I love from from uh, from Ryan, the, the director that I work with. You know, when we first ever did a, um, a you know, digital color grade for a film movie, because we had only printed before, uh, he was like, he described it as, uh, you know, it, it would be like if your car had all of these buttons and dip switches and knobs all over the, all over the, um, all, all over the dashboard. And yet, you know, everyone can, it controlled like every, every piston you know, the carburetor, the air mixture it's, and he's like, okay, technically you would have more control over the car, but you actually would not be able to drive it. You know? and that, <laughs> You know, that's kind of such a great analogy. What I'm talking about is you have to have it where the thing, like if you, like if those controls are there, that's great, but it has to work where you can drive it with a steering wheel and a gas pedal. And then if you want to start manipulating things, and, and that's kind of the part that was missing when people just jump in, they're so excited that you can change the color of the lights, but you have to, you know, know how to adjust all those dip switches and stuff just to know how to get it to be a certain color, or you don't even know how to do it, you know? Yeah. So, so it's kind of, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of making it where the baseline just works. And then if, you know, if you want to open the box up and start tinkering with it, you can, but, but it, it you know, uh, on set, we need stuff to just work. You can't be doing all of this engineering and science and R and D for every single shot. You just need lights to work. <laughs> you got to get a frame up. 
Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, it, that that gives you also, I feel like, a new appreciation for you know we we've uh, talked in in maybe sometimes less than flattering terms about off the shelf solutions and some of them being less than ideal. But it gives you a first perspective on actually how bloody difficult it is not only to engineer and implement a sound system, but then to put an outer wrapper around it that affords the appropriate measure of control Absolutely. and constraint, right? That's, that's, that's so well phrased, the outer wrapper thing that you just mentioned, because, you know, like for me, uh, you know, like the way I shoot, like if you talk about the LUTs and that, you know, the, the, the pipeline stuff, you know, I actually figure all that out at least in prep and sometimes just between movies where then I've got yeah. to figure out when I get to a movie. So in a way, I mean, if you think of like Steve wearing different hats, like in a way I'm using an off the shelf one cause I already figured that all out. Right. Now it just works. It just happens to be that it was me that figured it out and not somebody else. And now we're just using it. And we're not fiddling around on set. You need something that, 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 you know, that just, that just works and you're not fiddling around with it and going, why is it like this? And, you know, all, all of that stuff. So I'm, you know, I'm in no way advocating for things to be out of control and always figure, figuring them out. I mean, I'm actually saying you need a buttoned up pipeline the way we used to have with film. It's just that it's going to be different for everybody. Now it has to be. Whereas with film, everybody went through the same, the same buttoned up pipeline. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely an advocate of, you know, you've got to button up your pipeline, but somebody's got to actually do it. it there, there isn't, you can't just not do anything like you used to be able to because everything was the same. You didn't have yes. to explain, you know, you just literally write process normal on the camera report. You don't have to, you know, there's not right. setting up all of these, you, you know, uh, you could even write process normal and here's my printer lights. Like, you know what I mean? And it's the same everywhere and you don't have to figure it all out. And, and, you know, so the, the, the fact that I do have a buttoned up, I think sometimes is why people think that I'm being like proprietary by not distributing it or something because it, but it doesn't have that second outer wrapper that you're talking about. Right. You know, like, yes, it's buttoned up so that we don't have to do anything. It just works. But that's because we also know, you know what I mean? Like it's, you know, we, it's like I do it with Photocam and I don't have to explain this to them every time. And it, you know, there's sort of all of these different aspects to it where, there's things that we do all the time. So there's no effort involved for us, but if someone else was going to do it, there would either be, you know, effort for them or there would be effort for us to explain it all to them. And then it's not turnkey. It's us doing a bunch of work for free or something to help somebody else do something that they didn't figure out how to do, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's like in, in Ryan's, I'm 100% stealing that analogy. That's so good, <laughs> by the way. Um, yeah. But in that analogy, it's like, you need those dip switches and controls and individual, like, uh, explicit, uh, yeah, controls over everything inside the machine. They just probably shouldn't be on the dashboard, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you do need them to be in there and you need when the right person in the right moment in a particular, uh, like, usage of that machine comes along. The right person needs to be able to control that stuff. You just want to present it at the right moment to the right person so that you can do what you're oh, trying to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's, I, I feel like we're, we're touching on something that is a, uh, just seems like a, 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 the, the ideal for the entirety of like production through post where you have these sort of ground level built up systems, whether it's the way that you are, profiling and getting exact uh, SPD behaviors out of a particular light source or the way that you are pipelining your image from sensor to screen, like any of these pieces we're talking about where they are turnkey kind of modules that you can deploy as a piece without having to, you know, like write out some fresh code or anything on the fly. Exactly. Yeah. But if you want to open up the uh, hood and, and get in there and tune something for that one instance or as a global for from now on type thing, you also have that control. It sounds like you're you're getting closer and closer all the time to having such a system at your fingertips. No, that's and that's absolutely right. That you know, also the more you do it, the, it is more modular, like you just said. Where um, I mean, it actually is like writing code. Uh, I mean, some of it's literally writing code, but the bigger conceptual thing is is there's an analogy to writing code of making things modular because there's that thing where you can write code where okay, it works. But now if you want to change anything, you have to rewrite all the code because it's such right. a mess and it's all interlocked. Whereas if you make everything modular within the code, then if you want to change something, 
it could even be something that feels big at the top level, but it's actually a minor change because all the elements are still the same. You've basically built that static library that, that's, that's just the pieces that are being put together. And, um, you know, I, like I've, you know, I've worked towards that, like, um, between actually between last Jedi and knives out, I completely basically threw away my LUT and redid all the math in it. And then it ended up looking exactly the same, but with different math. And it was partially to make it more modular and where it's completely literally invertible instead of only approximately invertible. And so it's kind of all about like smoothing out the, the system, you know, yeah. and, 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 and the fact that the, the components in the computation stack are more modular too means, you know, because the way the LUT was before, if you would change one thing, the whole thing was broke. You know, right. like you can't, it had all, you know, this huge computation stack. And if you're like, oh, I just want to change this, that's going to mess everything else up. You know, whereas here now, at least to an extent, and it's not like, you know, it's not true ad, ad absurdum, but, to, you know, to an extent now you can change pieces and it's not going to, you know, or, you know, I can change pieces and it's not going to screw everything up, you know, so. Um, and that, that, that takes a really special, uh, a type of brain. And, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that, that we have yours in our business, uh, <laughs> a, just to know that you're doing it, but B, like, as we started our conversation with, like, it's just cool to look at the fruits of it. Like when I watch knives out or, or any of your films, I'm like, man, like it worked. Like, <laughs> as you said, it's not about like, look at all the cool code that I built or my custom this or that. It's like, it worked. I wanted this to look and feel like that. And I exerted control at all of the right inflection points in order to achieve that result with the tightest level of like precision that I was capable. It worked. That's just, I mean, it's cool that, that you're out there and, and pulling yeah. that off. No, absolutely. And, and I think the thing that that applies to for people, you know, like we're, it doesn't have to be my style, either technically my style or aesthetically my style. I think the, I think kind of the, the thing that, that feels right about it is by getting everything buttoned up <coughs> so that you're not figuring it out shot to shot and everything. That's not only better for the movie, because obviously you're going to be pulling your hair out while you're in the chaos of a set, which is crazy anyway, but also in post, you know, like in Knives Out more than any other movie that I've ever done, we're truly using every ounce of the final grade for finesse, for finesse and polish. There is no building from scratch. There's no like, why is it like this? Why can't we, you know what I mean? It's like the whole yes. thing. And then, and then like the, you know, the colorist can, can uh, you know, we have amazing colorist aid in Stanford, you know, he can just like do what he's good at. And it's not like, you know, it's not like he's doing damage control for three quarters of the time and then, and then, and then showing what he can do for a quarter of the time. You know, he's just doing his thing the entire time of, of, of the finesse work of really, polishing it up and, and, and making it look great rather than, you know, like I said, rather than just damage control and what the hell's going on here and, <laughs> you know, all, all of that stuff. You know? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I hope for all of my colorists listening that that's music to your ears and also <laughs> a good challenge that like, that's where you need to be good. That's where you need to be able to add value. And we have to find a way to spend as much time there as possible. And, and that is a lot easier when it's supported by uh, the, yeah. the, you know, like the right processes and systems. Uh, yeah. I mean, the colorist can't make it happen. I mean, if the, if the, if the production was a shambles, they're going to get receive stuff that's a shambles and they're going to have to do damage control. <laughs> yeah. And it can be, it, it's so funny, man. Like, you know, just from, from my perspective, uh, you know, when, when I'm, I'm sitting with uh, the production side, we, you can run the, the range of like the ideal scenario you just described where kind of from the outset, we're like, no, that's the ratio. That's where the shoulder hits. That's where the toe is. That's where the colorimetry maps, all that fun stuff. Now let's just shape things and fine tune and finesse and support the work that began on set. On the other end of it, you can have conversations. You can bog up three quarters of a grade with like, no, really, that's what your frame looks like run through a <laughs> stock pipeline. That's where the shadows sit. And we can tune that. We can tweak that. But we're tuning and tweaking that. That's not like a vanilla behavior. Because whatever you didn't, you weren't previewing in the right context, or you had like misconceptions about where you ought to expose your middle exposures, or you know whatever the the, the yeah, case absolutely. may be. It's well, such I, a I, gamut. Yeah. Well, there there's one example of the thing you're talking about that I know firsthand. I mean, not 
from my project, but from talking to both DPs and most people, there's like one specific one that's very practically true. It's not like a hypothetical thing. It's happening all the time, which is people will often view on set with the Aries K1S1 LUT, which I'm not denigrating, but if you don't like, the thing is, it is that misnomer of what you see is what you get. Cause just on set, you're not thinking about all that stuff. You're not doing right. It's the chaos of a set. You have actors and setups and lighting and you know, it's a set is a huge chaotic thing and you're not just thinking about micro stuff about the tone, the tone curve, which is what you're going to be doing in the grade. So people just aren't thinking about that. They're like, okay, it looks great. Then they get into the grade and K1S1 looks milky. It's not technically milky because it, you know, the bottom of it's at zero, but it looks milky because, you know, all all the stuff that would be a, a toe in a in a more filmic LUT is high. So it's yeah, like, it's up. yeah, it's like everything's bright and then it tanks hard to black. It's not like there's a lot of low tones. So it looks milky. But if you lit for it, you have this problem where, you know, uh, you know, you might have like the dark side of somebody's face. Let's just say you have a certain shot where aesthetically what the filmmakers are after is the dark side of their face is darker than the bright side, but it's not like dark. It's a not scary shot or whatever. And it's not, not very toothy shot. But the problem is that dark side of their face is now barely any differentiation in tone between that and the darkest pixel in the shot. That's like, you know, here it would be like, un, you know, the shadow under the, under the Fireflies thing, there. yeah, you know, and there's no diff, there's almost no differentiation between those two tones. So they, they were like, "Why can't I have the face as bright as it was on set?" On set, and it's like, "Well, you can, but then you can't also have the blacks unless you rip the image apart because you have these two tones that are almost right next to each other. Right, you want one to be up, and you want the other to be way down, and you didn't shoot a whole bunch of tones." in between there because of how you might so so there's nothing wrong with the k1s1 look if then you're going to be okay with it on the other end yeah you know, but if you if you think it's okay to monitor with that and you're using a monitor and not the meter or 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 if you're just using a meter where you've memorized what that wrong monitor looks like it's the same right. as the monitor then then because i've had that discussion with dps too where, where they're like um you know, cause I've had this discussion where people are like, what, what's wrong with this post house? Isn't their LUT messed up? And, and they describe the problem. I'm like, no, it sounds like you just lit for K1S1, but you don't really want K1S1. Right. You know, and, and like I'll say, well, did you use the, so, so, so the monitor, what did you have on there? We had the area light on there. Okay. Well, that's going to be the, exactly the thing you're talking about. Did you use your meter? Yes. Well, what did you do with your meter? Did you use film, like old style film ratios? Ratios? Yeah. yeah. Like, no, I use the ratios that made it look good on the monitor. You're like, well, that's the same as using the monitor. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so, you know, so it's like you could use your meter to overcome that, but why? It's like, why use the wrong lot? Why use, or why use, or, or, and why use your meter if, because the way we've always used meters in the past, like in film days, is you know how it's going to come out in the end. In the print. Yeah. Like, I, it's not like, it's not like the meter's telling me what's going to happen on the neg. It's telling me what's going to happen in the print. I had to memorize what it means. Like two under looks like this, three under looks like that. And if all you're doing is, uh, you know, validating the mistake, right? You're like, okay, I'm just going to hold my meter out there and then go back to the monitor and make the monitor look the way I want. It's like, okay, you're memorizing. The thing that yeah. you're memorizing with the meter is for the monitor to look right, not for it to look right through the whole pipe. How to consistently get the wrong result. Yeah. <laughs> and again, the thing is, if the what you're using is is truly representative, then that's a, that can be an okay um, evaluative tool. I mean, obviously, you can't have video range, full range mismatches. You can't have, there's a bunch of other kind of pitfalls. Yeah, surround conditions, all that stuff comes all into play. All that stuff is a pitfall, but at least if you have, you know, a LUT that actually represents what you're going to do, then you can use the monitor as an evaluative tool, but if not, it's, it's, it's not only not an evaluative tool, it can be the opposite where it's a, it, it makes you, gives you a false sense of security when you're, when you're doing something that's a problem. You know, so. Well, I think you're talking about a new form of obligation that colorists and post houses now have to you production guys. That's like, to the extent that we're supporting you and creating your viewing lots or your shooting lots, for example, we have to understand that unless the person we're working with is using a meter and using a meter based on 
calculated like ratios that you just described, unless that's the case, we are basic, we are, we are going to be largely informing, first of all, mid exposure. If the LUT moves mid exposure up or down, we're going to be informing that. And then we're also going to be informing your ratios. So we have an obligation to give you a ratio that meaningfully embodies the ratio that you're going to want when we get into the DI. Otherwise, we have the exact problem you're describing, which absolutely we get all the time. Yeah. And also, I think uh, there's also, I've seen, I'm not saying it's, it's you know, it's not 100%, but there, there is a pervasive confusion for where there's a, sometimes I've seen people lean towards wanting a flatter LUT, like for safety, like they're thinking, okay, well then, that, right. you know, instead of, you know, things don't look as, as scary or toothy or, 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 you know, as daring. And you're like, no, but that's the opposite. You're going to get the opposite effect. You're going to get the opposite. Like the, if you want the lunch, if you want to be safe, you know, for me, I don't, I don't do it that way. I'm not like, I'm not like, let's make a pad for safety. I'm like, let's just do it the best way. But right. if you do want a pad, you, you should make, if you do want a pad for blandness rather than for, cause that's what they're pushing for is blandness, not, um, not daringness. Right. Right. If, if you want a pad for blandness, you need to make the LUT contrastier so that you light it flat. Right. Otherwise, you're lighting it too contrast. You're doing the opposite thing. You're, you're not giving yourself any wiggle room. Uh, it, to, if what you're trying to do in post is potentially make it blander because, you know, this isn't my approach, but I just see this where it's like safety and, you know, there's people that are scared of any kind of, uh, you know, photographic tooth to it, you know, but, you know, if that's what you're doing, you got to make the contrast. You're not flatter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like that's, that, that, that's more wisdom that we can take away. I think on both sides, I think that's a, that's, that's a, a, a that's something that isn't necessarily intuitive that is so helpful for any colorist who's ever said yes to generating a shooting LUT or mm -hmm. any cinematographer who has ever contemplated how they should ratio in order to, you know, be able to get the image that they ultimately want rendered to remember that that sort of like counteraction that you're talking about. Like if you want a higher ratio in the end, then you need to, you know, let, like like monitor and ratio and light in this way. And if you want a lower ratio in the end, you need to do it in that way. Such a good thing to yeah, keep no, in mind there. Absolutely. And I think that another thing that that this is this is a subtler thing that I think that the, the people that want really turnkey stuff wouldn't even think about. So, but so it's like just a slightly next yeah. layer. But when people do start to think about it, I think one thing they forget is too, because I've had this discussion is like, even the way I was talking about it just now is oversimplified where I'm saying contrasty. But the thing is it's not just contrast your flat, it's where is the contrast? Because in reality, there's no professional LUTs that are clamping or clipping like the old video, uh, processing used to do, you know, I mean, there's literally no LUT that somebody would use on a professional movie that's just chopping the whites or chopping the blacks. Right. So the is how are you using all the tones? You know, so when I say contrasty, it's not just stretching all the tones farther apart and pushing some off the edge, obviously. Right. So it's like, where do the tones go? And I think the thing that people forget is, you know, we've gotten to where now digital has as much latitude as film used to do, which is great. We got there, but it's not like it's way over. It's not like we used to have 14 stops. And now we have 30. It's like, okay, it's, it's the same, you know, and, and it's true that it's less noise too. So you can move it around more, you know, you can move the, those tones around a little more than you could with film, but it's not more latitude, you know, right. it's just the same latitude with some, with less noise. So, so it, it's not like you have all these tones that you can waste. So if you take them, if you make the middle flat, which is what people are doing when you, you know, when you use any of the, um, whether it's K1, Aries K1S1 or any of the, um, you know, most of the generic looks, they're, they're really flat in the middle. But you have to remember that means your contrast, you're at the edges because you've taken right. those tones away from the edges. So you don't have a long shoulder because usually, you know, usually that filmy shoulders, you know, the toe and the shoulder are a long lengthy. Yeah. Yeah. A long, uh, flat ish, you know, lower contrast thing. You've had to take those tones away to make it flatter and you pulled them into the middle. So, you know, so you, you've taken from somewhere to put somewhere else. It's not like it's an infinite thing or it's not like, I mean, I've had it too, where people talk to me as though I'm doing an art, like I'm, 
the film emulation thing is like an art, it's just archaism, like it's just fetishizing the old way. Why, you know, it's like, Steve, why don't you, now that the camera can get the latitude and it's less noisy, why don't you use that latitude to, to you know, not have to put as much fill or something? I'm like, I am using the, that latitude, but for something else. I'm using it to still have that shoulder and toe that I like. You're yes. absolutely correct that you can use it to not have as much fill, but then you can't have the toe because you yes. took the toe away for your for your low your low mid tones yes you know, so you can do it but and and the other thing that that leaves out of course is that there are scenes you can't let you know what i mean like if you just go outside and and do a shot you know what i mean in, in daylight you know you're not going to light like if there's the shadow under if you have a row of parked cars you're not going to like put a light under every part of the car, you know what I mean? Like, you, you know, there's a certain tonal range that's just how the world is, you know? So it's not just, it's not like every single shot has a key light and a fill light and the fill light, you don't have to, you know, it's not like if you use this light, now you can just turn that fill light down because there's, the world has a tonal range. It's not like always this tonal range you're creating with two lights, one that's a key and one that's a fill, you know? Well, and that's where you get into, I think, more of the craft of sculpting really good curves, where it's like that amount of roll in the top and the bottom and the length of that shoulder and toe are going to affect not only what does it do on this shot when I change it, but depending on how I shape that, it's going to change how well that travels in those different uh, yeah. ratio environments, which is part of the black magic of like what we love so much about uh, like a filmic print curve because it has this magical quality of kind of slotting mixed ratios into somewhat of a common territory, certainly letting the ratios exist where they ought, but also like bringing them into one space a bit more than you would get with like, to make an extreme example, your like linear contrast thing of like, oh, just slam the bottom down and the top up and see what that yeah. does. You know, it just yeah. never works. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, man, I feel like uh, we're, we're an hour in and we could probably cover every question <laughs> that I want to ask you with no more than eight more hours. Um, yeah. <laughs> but since we both have uh, other adventures and endeavors to get into, I think that's a great place to round out the talk. And I just want to thank you so much for all you've done for the filmmaking uh, community in terms of educating and uh, advancing wow. conversation and for, for this chat as well. This was so much fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, man. Have a great day. We'll speak soon. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Good.